Revelation chapter 20 is where we are, and we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and it's been a joy to my heart, and I pray that it has been to you. Now, I want you just to think about this for just a minute. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world that was dominated by good rather than evil? Can, can you imagine, just try, if you can, what it would be like to live in a world that was dominated by justice? rather than injustice. Think about what it would be like to live in a world that was dominated by peace instead of conflict. Can you, can you just try the best you can, try to imagine that? Can you imagine if this was a world where there were no need for, no, no need for prisons? Imagine a world where there was no need for hospitals or for mental health facilities. Can, can you imagine a world where People had a, a fullness of joy and incredible physical health and vitality and tremendous longevity. Just try to imagine a world where the curse of sin is lifted. Where everything really is restored to a, a paradise-like state like Adam and Eve enjoyed once in the Garden of Eden where the lion lays down with the lamb. I know that might sound far-fetched and it might sound like a fairy tale, but I'm here today to tell you that is no fairy tale. I'm here to tell you today that according to Revelation chapter 20, a world like that is coming. In fact, let me just be clear. From what I understand about Scripture, we may be no more than seven years away from a world that exactly is exactly like the world that I just described to you. It's a world that's described for us in Revelation chapter 20 that a lot of people would call the millennial kingdom. It's the time when Jesus has come back the second time to earth. Not talking about the rapture. He doesn't come to the earth in the rapture. He comes in the air and he calls us up to meet him. But when he comes the second time to this earth, I believe that's going to be at the end of what we've been studying in the book of Revelation, the seven years of tribulation. At the end of those seven years, he conquers his enemies at Armageddon. And then Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom where he rules and reigns for a thousand years on this earth. That's known as the millennial kingdom. When we talk about the millennial kingdom, there's three main views among Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll be preaching from what's called the premillennial view. That view is the view pre-meaning before. The idea is that Jesus is going to come to this earth before those thousand years upon this earth. That his second coming actually will be the linchpin that ushers in the thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. Some people hold to what's called post-millennialism. Post meaning after. The idea of post-millennialism is that Jesus, through his church is establishing his kingdom on this earth, that his church will usher in a golden era of society that really becomes then the kingdom of God on earth. And after that kingdom is established, then Jesus will come and he'll rule as king there in that place. The post mill view is a really optimistic view that sees the world getting better and better and the kingdom of God evolving from that. The premillennial view 
sees the world getting worse and worse until Jesus comes and brings that to an end and then establishes his kingdom on the earth. One of the really popular views today among Christians is what's called amillennialism. Amillennial, that A in front of millennial meaning not. Like theist means God or belief in God. Atheist means no God, not believing in God. Or the word amuse, right? If you're musing, you're thinking on something. If you're amused, you're not thinking on something. You're just simply amused. Well, the amillennialists would say that there will be no literal earthly thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, that that's figurative, that the kingdom of God has already been established here on the earth, that the promises that God made in the Old Testament to Israel are now being fulfilled in the church and that we're in the kingdom of God right now. Now, listen, since um, I am premillennial, and I'm going to preach from that viewpoint today, my postmillennial friends and my amillennial friends, some of whom are in this room or listening on live stream, they're, they're not going to be pleased with me because they'll feel that I didn't give their viewpoint enough airtime or didn't represent it fairly. But to be honest, look, if I expanded on every possible viewpoint of every biblical truth that I ever tried to preach, we would never get anywhere. If I was teaching a Bible study on the millennium, then we would have a lot more in-depth conversation about that. But that's not my purpose here today. Let me say this to my post-mill and amill friends who already know this. They certainly know this about me. This is not a primary issue when it relates to the gospel. We can disagree about these things and still be iron sharpening iron in each other's lives and bringing glory to the Lord in doing so. Or we can choose to divide over this and disagree over this and bring shame to the name of Jesus. That's not what we're going to do. So if you're post-mill or amill, I just want to affirm to you that I love you and I care for you and I respect your view of Revelation chapter 20 as erroneous as your view may be. I'm just kidding. I'm just picking on you. So, so, to be, so to be clear, here's the way I'm preaching this. I am what you would call a pre-tribulationalist. What that means is I believe that the church is going to be raptured out of this world before the tribulation begins. That our being raptured to be home with the Lord is going to usher in then those seven years of tribulation. That doesn't mean that the church is not going to face tribulation. Jesus said we will. In this world, you will have trouble. But I don't believe the church is going to face that period of time known as the tribulation that we've been studying in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. So I'm a pre-trib guy. I'm also a pre-millennialist, meaning that I believe at the end of those seven years of tribulation, Jesus is going to come back to this earth, and then that will start the millennial reign of Christ on this earth for a thousand years. So I, I want to say all that because just being honest, that's how I'm approaching Revelation chapter 20. I could be wrong. Post mill could be right. All mill could be right. Mid trip could be right. Hope not. Post trip could be right. Certainly hope not. I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I'm committed to just preaching the word of God. Let's let it speak. And if you want to have a Bible study with me later about it and correct me, that'd be certainly fine. I'm open to that, but this is where I'm coming from today. Everybody got that? Any questions? I certainly hope not. Here we go. Today, what we want to look at is the millennium summarized. What's going to be happening? What's it going to be like 
in those thousand years. And again, to be clear, this is a future event. An event, by the way, that if you're in Christ today, you're going to be a part of. I believe the thousand-year reign of Christ is a biblical period of time that Christ's followers are going to experience. We're going to live in that period of time. So I want you to know that in case you're finding yourself going, I don't think this has anything to do with me. Yes, it does. Even if you're an unbeliever, this has everything to do with you. You will experience this, but from a whole different vantage point, and you don't want to experience it from that vantage point. If you're a child of God today, this has everything to do with you. So I hope that it'll grip your attention. And as I said earlier, from, from the way I understand Scripture, we may be no more than seven years away from living in this kind of world that we're talking about. So the millennium summarized. The first thing I want you to see is the removal of Satan. The removal of Satan. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So when Jesus comes back after the battle of Armageddon and Jesus then establishes his kingdom on the earth, Satan is going to be removed from this planet for a thousand years. I don't have to tell you this, that hasn't happened yet. Satan is still alive and well. His fingerprints are all over our lives and our families and our society and this world. Peter warns believers like me and you in the church age that he is very much real. He says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is true for right now, the time that you and I are living in, but there is coming a day that will not be true. There is coming a day that this roaring lion will be caged and chained and bound, and he's going to be cast into what is called the bottomless pit. Following this battle of Armageddon, what John sees is this great angel coming down from heaven, and he has the key to the bottomless pit, and he has a great chain in hand. What has happened here, detective, is that Jesus has issued a warrant for the arrest of Satan. I've learned from watching Blue Bloods. Any Blue Bloods fans, Tom Selleck fans? I'm, I'm still an old Magnum P.I. fan, by the way. The New York Police Department would say that this angel gets the collar, right? He's the arresting officer here of Satan. And Satan then is thrown into the bottomless pit. But that's only a temporary holding cell for him. You say, well, what, what exactly are the crimes that Satan's charged with? Well, let's look at how the text describes him and that will help us understand the crimes that he's actually charged with. First of all, notice he's called the dragon. That's how we've seen him described in the book of Revelation. That's what he's been called in the book of Revelation. As the dragon, he has slaughtered millions, even billions of people. So he's guilty of murder. In fact, he's guilty of mass murder. He's guilty of terrorism. He's also here in the text called the ancient serpent. This is a throwback to Genesis chapter 3. He's the very same ancient serpent that deceived Adam and Eve and brought sin and death and decay into the whole world. What that means is that he is an accessory to every evil and heinous act that has ever happened in the world. Every rape, 
every murder, every robbery, every arson, every child abduction. He has been an accomplice in every single one of those. Every evil and vile act that has ever been perpetrated upon this world, Satan has been an accomplice in that. He is also here called the devil. The word devil means accuser. He is guilty of bringing libel and slander and false accusation. You say, who has he slandered? Well, first of all, right now he's slandering me and you. If you're a child of God today, he's slandering me and you before God. He's at the throne of God right now bringing up our sin before God. Heaping on guilt on us, or at least trying to but here's the good news right now before the throne of god we not only have an accuser satan we also have an advocate we have a defense attorney and his name is jesus and every time satan stands there slandering us jesus springs to our defense no father it's forgiven it's under the blood it's gone as far as the east is from the west it is gone but but here's the greater crime that satan commits not only is he slandering us before god but what is even more offensive to god is this he's slandering god to us lying about god twisting the truth of god dishonoring defaming the glory of god he's also noticed this in the text called satan which means adversary he is charged with being an adversary to God. In other words, he is guilty of high treason against the king of the universe. High treason against God Almighty. So now he is found guilty of all of this. He's placed under arrest and he's thrown into the pit where he's going to be for a thousand years. Now that's the removal of Satan. Secondly, I want you to see the reign of Jesus. The reign of Jesus now that Satan and his demons and men and women who rejected salvation in Christ, who followed the serpent, who followed the Antichrist, who followed the false prophet, now that all of them have been removed from the earth, the millennial kingdom of peace and righteousness is inaugurated on this earth. And who is the king of that kingdom? None other than Jesus Christ himself. And he's going to sit, I believe, on the throne of David, answering, fulfilling the promise that he made to David back in the Old Testament, just as Jesus promised. And by the way, he's not going to rule alone. All of God's people throughout all time are going to rule and reign with Jesus. Think about that. Now resurrected, now fully redeemed, and now reigning with Jesus on this earth for a thousand years. See, Daniel chapter 7 tells us that men and women in the Old Testament who were saved are going to rule and reign with Jesus in this time period. Paul tells us that New Testament saints, like me and you, Christ followers in this period of time, this side of the cross, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And right here in Revelation chapter 20, we're told that even the tribulation saints, the men and women who were saved during the seven years of tribulation, they're also going to rule and reign with Jesus. All the people of God together ruling and reigning with Jesus. Look at verse 4. John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. When he says the rest of the dead did not come to life, he's talking about the unsaved. The unsaved from all the ages. They've not yet experienced their bodily resurrection. Their souls are already being held in a place of torment. But these unsaved men and women throughout all the history of mankind have not yet been resurrected. But these tribulation saints now are resurrected. And John says... This is the first resurrection. Now look, I understand the first resurrection to be how John describes the resurrection of all of God's people. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and tribulation saints. He calls all of that the first resurrection, but that's a resurrection that's not happening all at the same time. I believe what Scripture teaches is that the New Testament saints are resurrected at the time of the rapture. Old Testament saints and tribulation saints are going to be raptured at the second coming of Jesus as he's beginning his reign on this earth for a thousand years. All of that John is placing under the category of the first resurrection. The last resurrection will be the resurrection of all the unsaved men and women. I hope that may help you a little bit. Verse 6 says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Just go ahead and know I'm counting on being in the first resurrection. I'm blessed and I'm holy. I will be that day and I am this day. Not because of me, not because anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me at the cross. By grace, through faith, I am blessed in Him and I am holy in Him and I am in this first resurrection. I am convinced, according to Scripture, that my resurrection is going to happen when Jesus comes in the air. I stand in graveyards a lot conducting funerals, and I get a little geeked out every time, a little fired up, a little excited, because I just, I'm really kind of hoping that that's where I'm going to be when this happens. That, that my resurrection is a rapture, and that I'm watching all these other saints getting raptured up. And he, I just want Jesus to interrupt a funeral out in the graveyard one day when I'm out there. So he says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first row. That's, but that's not just me, I don't believe. I believe he's also including in that the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. They're also blessed, aren't they? They're also holy, aren't they? Because they're saved, just like you and just like me. Look, it goes on and says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. You say, what is the second death? When we get down to verse 14, it's going to define that for us as the lake of fire. Or an eternal hell. Eternal separation from the love of God. We're not going to experience that. Others will, but not the saints of God. Instead, look what the text says. But they, that's followers of Christ, but they will, instead of lake of fire, they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Listen, if you know Jesus today, that's you. The lake of fire has no place for you. Not one spark will ever touch a hair on your body. Jesus has already borne the wrath of God for your sin at the cross. The lake of fire has no place for you. Instead, here's what, here's what the scripture just said. Instead of that, you will be a priest to God. What does that mean? What does a priest have? A priest has access to God. Instead of being cut off from God, you're going to have access to Him, a priest of God. In fact, you already do. Our eternal life doesn't begin when we're raptured or resurrected. 
Our eternal life begins the moment we put our faith in Christ. You have access to him right now. You're going to have access to him then to be able to worship God in his holy presence. But not only will we miss out on the lake of fire, not only are we going to be priests of God, but we're going to be royalty. Look at what the text says. You're going to reign with Christ in his kingdom for a thousand years. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm not really strong in administration or leadership. I'm not really sure that I'm going to be a good ruler during that time. Let me tell you what. It is going to be easy. It is going to be such an easy job to rule and reign with Christ for that thousand years because that kingdom and this planet is going to be dripping with the glory of God. You won't be solving conflicts. You won't be dealing with all kinds of challenges. It's going to be pure joy and glory. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would he teach us to pray something that's never going to happen? It's going to happen. And we're going to be priests and rulers in that kingdom with him. But then we come to the third thing I want you to see about this thousand-year kingdom. The third thing is the return of Satan. Verse 7 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, just when you think you've seen the last of him, it's like one of those old scary movies, right? And you think the monster's dead, and here he comes again. Well, here Satan comes again, but look, make no mistake, he didn't break out. This is no escape from Alcatraz, this is no jailbreak. The king has summoned him to come forth. Now, let me, let me try to clarify something here. All the saints of God have been ruling with Jesus as priests of God for a thousand years. This includes all the Jews and Gentiles that were also saved during the time of tribulation. Many of them have died. They've now been resurrected. They have a glorified body. But I also understand the scripture to teach us that there will be some people saved during the tribulation that will escape the execution of the Antichrist. They will enter into that thousand-year reign in a mortal body. In other words, they don't yet have a glorified body. They've not yet died. They've not yet been resurrected. This means that they go into the millennial kingdom still having a sin nature. Like you and I have right now. We're going to have this sin nature until we're raptured or resurrected and we receive a glorified body. So you've got men and women that are going into the kingdom of God for those thousand years with mortal bodies and with a sin nature. And those men and women, we're not in the eternal state yet. We're still bound in the thousand years to time and space, right? In heaven, in the eternal state, there will be no marriage or giving of marriage. But we're not there yet. You say, we're not in heaven yet? Not yet. you got to come back to church till we get to that part of Revelation. All right? So you've got some mortal men and women now, saved, yet still bearing a sin nature, who are reproducing over the course of these thousand years. And just like Adam and Eve and every mama and daddy have done since Adam and Eve, guess what? They're going to be passing down to the generations who were born during those thousand years. That sin nature. That propensity to want to reject and to rebel against God. Every generation born during those thousand years on this earth 
are going to carry that sin nature. Many of them are going to look at King Jesus and embrace him as their Savior. Embrace him as their Lord and be saved. But many of them, believe it or not, they'll despise him. In dark places in their heart, they will despise him and reject him. So how, how can that be? Well, Adam and Eve did it. We've all done it. Even Jesus, when he stood before them in flesh 2,000 years ago, they nailed him to a cross. Do not ever underestimate the power of sin. They rebel against him, even as he reigns over this place in those thousand years. What this means is that by the time we get to the end of that thousand years, there's been a population explosion. Our population over the last thousand years has grown by maybe seven billion people. Six billion, maybe. Because this is going to be such a time of peace and prosperity, people aren't going to be dying of war or diseases. There's going to be an incredible population explosion over the course of those thousand years. And there's going to be a lot of unsaved men and women inhabiting this planet in those thousand years. But because Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. Why do you think the Bible describes his rule and reign as ruling and reigning with a rod of iron? Why will that be necessary in the millennial kingdom? Because there's going to be sinners living in the millennial kingdom. But because he's ruling and reigning like that, they're suppressing this. They're keeping it hidden deep within their hearts. But when Satan is released from that pit at the end of those thousand years, it is like the fuse then is lit. And suddenly there's a great global rebellion. Against King Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth point, the last point today the rebellion of sinners. The rebellion of sinners. Verse 7 told us that Satan's going to be released. Verse 8 says, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. This is not a flat earth, this is just understanding we recognize north, south, east, west, right? The four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. We could spend some time spinning our wheels talking about what is Gog and Magog. Most likely, that just simply is a representation of all the people who are against God, who are opposing God. What's Satan doing? To gather them for battle. So he's assembling all of these sinful men and women, one last great rebellion, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Verse 9 says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation. Where's the camp of the saints going to be? It's going to be around Jerusalem. It just says that. And the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. That's the capital city of this kingdom. Why are we going to be there? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where we, we want to be there. And that's where Satan and his rebels are going to attack. It says, but fire came down from heaven. And consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. By the way, the beast and the false prophet now have been in the lake of fire for a thousand years. And they're still there. They don't go out of existence. Nobody ever will go out of existence. You're going to spend forever either in the presence of Jesus or apart from Jesus forever. The Bible says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now look, this last great sinful rebellion tells us a lot about the power of sin. 
Think about this. We, we, we try to modify our behavior, right? We, we try to, to make the world a better place. We have all these ideas about how to make ourselves and others the ideal people. We got to come to this realization that sin is such a power in the hearts and the lives of people, of humanity. Look, punishment is not enough to fix the human heart. Satan will have just done a thousand years of hard time. And he is as wicked on the day he comes out as he was on the day that he went in. In this world, punishments and prisons are necessary. But alone, they do not change a person's heart. We sometimes think if we can just better our culture, better our environments. Listen, these people are going to live a thousand years in the best environment, in the best culture that you can ever imagine. The best environments are not enough to change a sinner's heart. The criminologist and his prisons are incapable of changing a sinner's heart. So what are, what are we learning here? The power of sin over a human heart. Punishment doesn't fix a human heart. Environments can't fix a human heart. Criminologists in their prisons can't fix a human heart. Sociologists in their programs can't fix a human heart. Politicians and their politics can't fix a human heart. There's only one who can fix a human heart, and his name is Jesus. He's the only one that has the power to break sin, bondage, and death. You can punish yourself. You can try to better yourself. You can educate yourself. You can align yourself with people in power, but none of that is ever going to get to the root of what the real problem is. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. It's sin. And there's only one Savior and only one who's available to rescue us. If you'll trust Him today and give Him your life, He'll do that. He'll give you eternal life in His presence forever. Or you can choose to follow Satan. And you'll live with Him in a place of torment forever. Why would you do that? He's a fake, he's a fraud, he's a phony, he's a liar, he's a loser. Grace Life, what does all this mean for us today? In light of the times that we're living in, in light of what Scripture has been saying to us over these weeks, what does this say for you and for me? Let me just wrap up by saying a couple of things. First of all, the first thing I would say is that we need to be people who celebrate. We need to be people who realize that Jesus and his kingdom and his purposes are unstoppable. And we ought to be people who are celebrating. We ought to be celebrating because we know there's no condemnation for us because of Jesus. We ought to be celebrating because we know we have eternal life in Christ. We ought to be celebrating because we know Jesus is coming back. And I really don't know why we're so worried and fretful and sour in these days that we're living in. We need to be celebrating more, Grace Life, not less. We need to be fellowshipping together, Grace Life, more, not less. We need to be laughing together, Grace Life, more, not less. We need to be worshiping with confidence together, Grace Life, more, not less. 
Not only should we be in light of all these people who celebrate, but secondly, we need to be people who are anticipating. We need to live in anticipation that this moment is coming. That at any moment, either through death, rapture, resurrection, Jesus is coming. And we ought to live in light of that anticipation, living with a sense of urgency. Living with a sense of purpose. With a sense of focus. In light of all this, we ought to be celebrating more, not less. We ought to be anticipating more, not less. Third, we ought to be participating more, not less. To be participating in what God is doing in this world. These are not days to sit out. I I don't want to sound obtuse, but it really doesn't matter for the people of God what's going on in the world. We don't take a pass. In living for the glory of the Lord and for His kingdom. Especially not now. Especially not in these days. 20% of our fellowship can't be back with us yet. They shouldn't be. They can't be. They've got good reasons why they're not here. 20% don't want to be. They have found this season we're in to be the excuse that they've been looking for. This is not not a time for excuses. If you can't be here, you can't be here. But if you're going to work and you're going shopping and you're going to the ballpark and you're going to parties and you can't come to the house of God, you either need to repent or resign your membership. We ought to be people who are participating, not taking a pass. We ought to be people who are celebrating with joy. We ought to be people who are anticipating and participating. And we need to be people who are investigating. You say, investigating what? Trying to, trying to unravel all the conspiracies in the world. Trying to figure out what's going on with COVID. and Trying to figure out what's going on in politics. No, no, no. Quit wasting your time. You know what we need to be as children of God? You know what we need to be investigating? Our own hearts. We need to make sure that we know Jesus. These people will have spent a thousand years with Jesus bodily on this earth reigning as king. They will externally look like good people who love the king. But they will be frauds. Fakes. They will still be dead in their sin. Children of God, we ought to be investigating our hearts. Test yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you saved? I say that to you a lot, not to try to make you miserable, but to make you full of joy. It's when you look at God's word and you test yourself to make sure that I am indeed a child of God. That's how you experience the joy of your salvation. You come back to the cross. You see Jesus and what he's done and how he reached down when you were dead in your sin. And he plucked you out and he brought you to life and the joy of your salvation flows. Grace Life, we ought to be people today who are celebrating. We ought to be people today who are anticipating. We ought to be people today that are participating. We ought to be people today that are investigating whether or not we truly know the Lord. God, we bow our hearts before you today. Thankful for your faithfulness and thankful for your word and thankful that you are coming again. In light of this, 
how could we not be celebrating? In light of this, how could we not be anticipating? In light of this, how could we not be participating? In light of this, how could we not be investigating? So as we close this time together, Holy Spirit, would you transform our hearts so that we would leave here doing those things? We need to celebrate more, not less. Anticipate more, not less. Participate more, not less. Investigate more, not less. Holy Spirit, land those truths on the appropriate hearts that have just heard them spoken and bring about the good work that you intend to bring about for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name.